If you look up at the balcony on Henry Granville Widener's third floor apartment, you'll probably notice the signs. One says rent strike. The other's in Spanish. It translates as divided we beg, united we bargain. I called Henry up on his lunch break the other day to talk about why he hung these signs up. The tape's a little rough here, but you'll get the idea. How long have they been there? Since the rent strike started in April, April 1st. Did you ever have any second thoughts about putting them out there? I get calls, you know, pretty frequent. I've gotten calls and emails about it from the leasing office, um, you know, and it does scare me. Last time I had a conversation with the office about it, and I was, you know, shaking, very scared about, you know, confronting this uh, reality that they don't like this. How many times have they asked you to take it down? Oh, probably four or five. If they're paying attention to that sign, it means that we're going to be hurt. So it's going to stay up until we get what we want. What Henry and his neighbors want is a promise that even though some of them might be short on rent, they won't get evicted. During COVID, more and more people here at this complex just outside Washington, D.C., started having trouble making ends meet. One day, Henry went out front and saw a neighbor's dresser and bed sitting right on the curb. That's when he started organizing. When a petition with 50 signatures got ignored by their management company, Henry started withholding rent. He convinced more than a dozen other tenants to join him. It grows, you know, with every month, especially people that, you know, you meet people that are current on their rent, but they're in debt to their families. Like, you know, some people up to like over $10,000. There are people that sold valuable items. You know, there are people that go without eating food just to pay rent. A lot of these folks feel trapped. They could apply for rental assistance from the federal government, but much of that money still hasn't gone out the door. And to be eligible for assistance in the first place, you've got to already have missed a payment. It's a risk. The CDC's eviction moratorium is set to expire in just a couple of weeks. I wonder how you think about that deadline right now, like whether you feel like you're living under a clock. When we talk about this crisis, I think it's really important to realize that the crisis is already here. People are living this crisis daily, and they've been living it for the past year. And honestly, things weren't that great for working people before the pandemic. I think really it's about what are we going to do about this crisis, you know? And to me, we just have to keep fighting. We have to keep organizing. We have to keep letting people know that, you know, they're not alone in this fight. Um, If the evictions start being served, we'll organize around that, and we will we will cross that bridge when we get there. Oh, so you're ready. Like, if you start seeing eviction notices, you're going to, you're going to move. Yeah. You think you're going to be evicted? Well, if I don't, you know, if I don't cough up the money, <laughs> and I'm not going to cough up the money until we reach some kind of agreement, so... Today on the show, another sign that the pandemic is ending is that pandemic-era protections, they're ending too. So what happens to the Americans who have been depending on them? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To get a sense of how we got to this point, with a possible eviction boom just days away, I talked to Eliza Durana with the Eviction Lab at Princeton. Eliza and her colleagues, they've been paying attention to housing and homelessness and eviction since before the pandemic. But over the last few months, Eliza's watched this herky-jerky response play out. As people got sick and lost their jobs, first Congress issued an eviction moratorium. This was back in the spring of 2020. But then it expired last summer. That's how the Centers for Disease Control stepped in. The CDC moratorium came about because, uh, you know, policymakers were worried that uh, the public health and economic crisis that had affected so many households and impacted their job loss or their health um, might trigger a cascade of events in which um, folks were unable to pay for their rent, that they um, might then lose their home, and in the process of losing their home, might also uh, face increased exposure to COVID-19. So um, in September of last year, shortly after the federal CARES Act had expired, the eviction lab actually saw a big spike in evictions when there was no federal moratorium. And within two weeks, um, the then Trump administration, um, you know, passed the CDC order through the the Department of Health and Human Services to help try and um, buy time to keep people in their homes while they applied for rent relief, tried to sort of find new jobs. I remember when the CDC order came out, it felt a little strange. Like, what's the CDC's jurisdiction here? Like, is this thing enforceable? I'm sure you had questions like that, too. It came as a bit of a surprise that, you know, that a federal eviction moratorium was being issued through the Department of Health and Human Services, through the, the Center for Disease Control, rather than through Congress, for instance, or by executive order. So it certainly took us by surprise, but it did have um, an immediate dampening effect on eviction filings in certain parts of the country. Um, but because of you know some flaws in the way that the CDC order was crafted, you know it left uh, many parts of the country exposed to ongoing eviction filings. So there are like many states, including our most populous states in the U.S., like Florida or Texas, where uh, evictions have been ongoing in spite of the CDC moratorium. How have they been ongoing? You know, there have been uh, numerous legal challenges in uh, in state circuit courts, um, in including, yeah, in the Georgia Circuit Court, the Ohio Circuit Court, and uh, one in Texas. Um, the the Department of Justice has been appealing challenges uh, to the moratorium by various realtors associations. Um, so right now we find ourselves in a place where, you know, we have this sort of important but tattered band-aid that is a federal eviction moratorium. And, you know, there are many more renters now than in a typical year that are that have fallen behind on rent. You know, 2020 and 2021 were not typical years uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So, um 
you know, we're preparing for the possibility that many families um, who, let's say, were facing an eviction earlier this year who had received protection, that, you know, that eviction process may start up again uh, when the federal moratorium lifts on June 30th. As the moratorium expires, there is a system in place that's supposed to catch these renters. Congress has set aside billions of dollars in rent relief to avert potential evictions. But local municipalities have struggled to get that money out the door. So Congress allocated, I think, initially uh, $25 billion in December and then an additional sort of $20 million uh, in, in 2021. Um, this money has just started to, to trickle down to states. Um, so uh, my understanding from the National Low Income Housing Coalition was that about an average of 13% of that $45 billion has been spent down. So having an eviction moratorium in place is really important as an emergency measure to help ensure that that money reaches communities before they lose their homes. We're seeing this play out in real time where um, folks who have an eviction filed against them have applied for rental assistance, but the eviction is being processed faster than, than they're getting the money to stay in their current homes. So, um, you know, we're urging governments, both at the federal, state, and local level, to extend eviction moratoria until emergency rent relief measures uh, fully reach communities. You said that only 13% of the rental assistance has gotten out there as of this week. I'm wondering a bit if you can explain why, because it seems like from the beginning, Congress, you know, they were even allocating assistance in a way that didn't make a ton of sense, like on the basis of state population without taking into account how many renters were there, for instance. And so that was one hurdle. And then the states were having to distribute the funds themselves. So coming up with systems to get the money out there. And I'm sure like everyone right now, states are stretched. So certainly there's an element, like as you're alluding to, of like trying to fly the plane as you're building it. So, you know, decades of underinvestment in our public infrastructure made it very difficult to to get money out the door. So when Congress allocated that, you know, the first 25 billion and the second 25 billion, um, ensuring that there are organizations on the ground that um, that have the capacity to disperse that money, knowing, for instance, also how to prioritize applications has been a big challenge. Um, the challenges that we're facing right now are like are have been decades in the making in terms of sort of the the underfunding of of public resources and, and infrastructure that would have enabled us to, to disperse this money as quickly as, let's say, some other countries have dispersed housing or, or financial aid to their, to their citizens and residents. So now it's the end of June, and the CDC moratorium is about to end. And it sounds like the rent relief program, as you said, they're still assembling the plane as they're trying to fly it. It sounds a little bit like a perfect storm right now where you're going to have one of these protections fall away and the other one is really just getting up to speed. I mean, it is a perfect storm. Uh, The eviction lab has new research out this week that is examining the association between like vaccination rates and evictions. And, you know, what we've found for all the sites that we have data is that the neighborhoods where there have been the biggest barriers to access, um, around vaccine rates, for instance, are also neighborhoods that are facing the highest eviction rates right now. So um, 
to put that differently, um, if you live in a neighborhood that has been underserved by, let's say, by public health or public policies, not only could you lose your, your home and and sort of your connection to community come June 30th, but you could also face uh, increased exposure to, to COVID-19. After the break, the eviction lab says renters who get kicked out carry a scarlet E forever after. So how many more renters are going to carry that mark after this moratorium expires? We've talked a lot on the show about how COVID did not create problems of inequality, but it revealed them. And you've alluded to this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can dive in a little deeper with me about how that applies when it comes to the evictions you track. Like, how has the last year revealed this rickety system that isn't really serving renters at all? The housing crisis prior to COVID-19 was partially a story of rising rents um, across the country in both small and large communities in red and blue states, as well as a question of, of wage stagnation that, you know, American residents have not gotten a raise in, in decades now at this point. Um, in addition to that, you know, there's a layer of, of racial and gender discrimination in our, in our housing market and in our housing policies. So, you know, we do see that um, communities of color and in particular Black and Latinx women, families with children and families experiencing domestic violence um, are face a disproportionate risk of eviction. Um, and for these community for, for our communities across the United States, you know, uh, eviction is a cause of poverty in America. It becomes um, sort of this, uh, we call it, we refer to it as the scarlet E that, you know, an eviction um, not only triggers sort of the loss of home and connection to community, but it also will ruin a person's credit, um, often affect job loss, uh, your tenant and rental, your rental history. Um, it affects sort of mental and physical health deterioration as well as suicidal ideation. So um, the, the implications of an eviction are quite grave um, for, for the many communities that, that it affects across the United States right now. But what that has meant is that over the course of the pandemic, we've seen laid bare this story of, of two Americas, of an America for whom housing security exists, um, an America that is protected from the violence and trauma of, of poverty, and, um, and then another America that you know, we have effectively abandoned. I was reading the comments of a representative for some landlords who made this argument which is he was saying eviction moratoriums create the illusion that everything is stable when in reality renters owe a lot of money landlords are trying to cover their expenses it doesn't get to the root i wonder if you'd actually agree with him on that i i don't um an eviction moratorium is not a silver bullet that was not the the intention of of a moratorium but at the same time um Eviction should not be the solution to every landlord problem. And that has been sort of an underlying assumption in the United States for a very long time. Um, often people will equate, if a person decides to go into business renting homes, 
a business owner assumes a certain level of, of risk in taking on a new business venture. But we are comparing sort of a choice that someone makes to, to start a business venture with a tenant's fundamental right and need for, for shelter um, just to exist as a human being. And I think that we need to stop sort of equating those two things. The issue is not that landlords should subsidize tenants in this difficult time, but rather that um, governments should come in and support communities through times of hardship. And we need time to get money to both property owners and tenants right now, which is the, the process of rent relief. And we simply have not had enough time to, to deliver on that support. And so what we're asking right now is both feedback in the process of, you know, making sure that the process of rent, of accessing rent relief is as easy as possible, particularly for historically marginalized communities. And at the same time, um, making sure that this does not result in mass homelessness, which is absolutely on the table. Do you not agree that a moratorium kind of creates this fundamental tension between a renter and a landlord where the landlord, you know, there are lots of small landlords who have apartments they rent. It's part of how they make things work. And a moratorium puts the burden on those people who may or may not have the ability to cover those expenses as opposed to putting the pressure on, say, the government to jump in and figure it out. I mean, this is a, a pretty U.S.-specific Problem. I mean, this tension doesn't necessarily exist in other countries the way that it exists in the United States. Um, we do have research indicating that, uh, you know, a couple of things. One is that your typical landlord in a low-income neighborhood does not have a mortgage on a property. And um, usually the profits in low-income neighborhoods are actually highest. So when we're thinking about the communities that are hardest hit by the crisis, that have been hardest hit by job loss, um, you know, uh, spread of the of COVID nineteen and and so on. Um, we're talking about um, displacing low income communities who have already suffered multiple um, traumas over the course of the last year. You know, in other countries, governments immediately began making payments to households on a continual basis to help people stay in their in their home. And it, you know, it has taken the U.S. government months um, to even begin that process. And so, you know, while while that tension exists, you know, eviction is not the solution to a landlord's problem right now. Most landlords in the United States are not mom and pop landlords. Most landlords in the United States are owned by corporate entities. And we're currently seeing also a a big buying spree in the uh, residential rental market that large scale venture capital investors are buying up properties across the United States, including in places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, where my colleague Matt Desmond wrote uh, the book Evicted. So there are many parts of the United States where, you know, folks are struggling to pay rent. Landlords are seeing this as a, as a business opportunity rather than as a a moment in which, you know, we need to address sort of the the question of our like humanity and, and ability to make it through one of the, the biggest crises that has affected the United States um, in a century. What are you expecting to happen on July 1st when this moratorium is over? 
You said that some areas of the country are already seeing eviction levels that are back to where they were. Are you expecting all the other parts to bounce back as well? You know, I think the last year has taught me not to make too many predictions. But uh, that being said, there might be a boom. Yeah, there might be a boom of evictions. So right now, like, we're certainly hoping that the governments at the local, state and federal level can, you know, consider like putting more money and resources into, you know, continuing protections for tenants in in many different forms in the form of, yeah, unemployment assistance, uh, food assistance, um, housing assistance, and so on, and, and also by extending eviction moratoria. But at this point, um, with so few state-level eviction moratoria in place and the federal moratorium about to expire, you know, we're preparing for, um, yeah, a, a, a possible spike in eviction filings and, um increased risk of eviction and homelessness for millions of Americans. I wonder a little bit whether the end of the CDC moratorium at the end of the month, I wonder how much impact it's really going to have or or whether this is kind of a chance to remind people that the housing system is incredibly insecure. It's been insecure. It continued to be insecure during COVID. The difference is that for a brief moment, the government acknowledged that insecurity, and and that's the change. But the moratorium itself may not have been the protection that we hoped it might be. No, it uh, it wasn't the protection that we'd hoped it might be. And I, you know, we can and should demand better. Frankly, you know, I think that the pandemic laid bare how normal. The, the trauma of poverty and eviction are as fixtures of American life. And the housing and eviction crisis, as it deepens through the pandemic, has the potential to create a houseless generation, sort of a, a permanent underclass of communities that live paycheck to paycheck through no fault of their own. And, um, you know, we're rushing back to, to crisis levels right now. Um, the eviction lab... Uh, has a tracker that is scraping court data from five states and 29 cities. And we can see that in in the parts of the country that are not observing the CDC order, um, eviction filings are almost back to quote unquote normal levels when we were seeing seven evictions filed per minute in some parts of the country. So that, you know, the, I think we're, we're, there is a moment right now that, you know, I, I hope that, um, that people, you know, choose to to see this as a a shift where we can articulate um, rights and human dignity for much of America. I'm starting the show by talking to a renter in Maryland who's formed a tenants association with the people in his building. They're on rent strike. Many people can't afford to pay their rent, and they are anxiously looking at this looming deadline of June 30th. What would you say to someone like that about what they do now with the moratorium ending? Oh, the first thing I'll say is that if you're facing an eviction right now, um, if you're worried about paying rent, like um, you have a right to fight an eviction in court. Um, There are millions of dollars in rental assistance available across the country. You may be eligible for a lawyer to sort of help you both fight the eviction and access that rental assistance. We at the Eviction Lab would encourage you to talk to your neighbors, talk to your community members, document everything that's going on in your life, take photos of 
uh, you know, of any communication that you receive from your landlord. Um, we also, the eviction lab has a sister site called Just Shelter, where um, we house a database of legal and social services across the United States. Um, so if you're looking for, for help, that is a, a good place to start. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, we've seen a lot of really inspiring demonstrations for fundamental human rights in the United States over the last year through the Black Lives Matter movement, through other um, civil rights movements. And this is that moment. I think, you know, we need to, you know, this is a moment for us to, instead of abandoning tenants, to actually build back better. We've learned a lot about fixes to the housing system through the pandemic. And now is the moment to make those fixes permanent. Aliza, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Aliza Durana is a reporter for the Eviction Lab at Princeton University. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Delshad, Daniel Hewitt, Davis Land, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. I will catch you back here tomorrow. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.